Well, thanks, Paul, and thank you, thanks to everybody out there uh, for being with us here this evening. But before we begin tonight's program, I want to be sure to let everybody know that this is the 100th anniversary of the National Park Service. And I, I feel every one of those years, too, I might say. <laughs> uh, and, and it's especially important, I think, for us to note that because in 1916, it was Richmonders like Douglas Freeman and J. Ambler Johnson who were just beginning to contemplate how the battlefields around Richmond could be preserved. And the work that they began a couple years later resulted in the savings of 754 acres. I'm proud to say that in the intervening years, and, and at this time in our centennial, the Park Service, the park has grown to nearly 3,700 acres, a feat that those founders would, I'm certain, certain, be extremely proud of. And I might add, if any of you all are contributing members of the Civil War Trust and our good friends, the Richmond Battlefield Associations, our key partners in this preservation work, please know that we're truly grateful for all that you do. And also, uh, with the centennial year, there's many programs going on in the National Park Service sites, both at the Richmond Battlefield and Maggie Walker. And out on the desk, you'll see some blue... Uh, handouts, and those include all of the programs that are going on throughout the entire summer, fall, and even into the, the winter season this year. So pick one of those up and come out and, and have a good time experiencing some of those 3,700 acres with us. But over the, the past four years, as Paul said, these banner lecture partnerships between the Virginia Historical Society and the National Park Service blossomed, I'm really happy to say, in a way that we couldn't fathom ending it at the conclusion of the Susquehannock. Since 2012, we investigated the war front, the home front, and even placed on the table the concept that the seven days battles around Richmond are more important as a turning point than Gettysburg. And I mention that only because I truly believe that the more I repeat that, the more people will eventually start believing it. <laughs> Um, particularly my colleagues at Gettysburg who remain unconvinced. But now with the war behind us, it's important that we continue our exploration into the extremely interesting but rather confusing and less popular era known as Reconstruction. For many students like myself, American history seemed to magically pause in 1865 and then pick up again three decades later. And during that obscure time, the nation reunited and forged ahead toward greatness of the 20th century. But the challenges of reunification and whose reunification it really was were questions rarely posed of ourselves. Perhaps it's because the answers were quite complicated and extremely complex. Well, tonight, we hope to unravel some of those complexities and mysteries surrounding Reconstruction and discuss why the post-Civil War era should have been more important to me and why it's relevant today. Our format will be a bit different than our previous lectures. Instead of a one-person program, we'll explore Reconstruction through conversation. You'll be essentially eavesdropping tonight on the conversation, but we'll have the usual opportunity at the end of the program to provide the typical probing questions that you do at the end of each of our lectures. In the role of the questioner will be Paul Levengood. Paul is a great, great personal friend and an incredible asset for Richmond who needs no introduction for this audience. But Dr. Ayers will have the role of historian and scholar. And although he's not new to this stage, can you imagine that? <laughs> And although he's not new to this stage, I'm delighted to mention a few key contributions that Ed has made to the world of academic scholarship 
and the RVA community. As many of you know, Dr. Ayers is a president emeritus of the University of Richmond, where he now serves as a Tucker Boatwright Professor of the Humanities. His accolades as a teacher are enormous. Dean of Arts and Sciences at the University of Virginia, named the National Professor of the Year by the Carnegie Foundation, member of the American Academy of Arts and Science. His work in the digital scholarship at the University of Richmond continues to show trends and patterns in American history. And in 2013, we were all extremely proud of the day that Ed was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President Obama in the White House. Dr. Ayers has also authored nearly a dozen important historical works, including The Promise of a New South, Life After Reconstruction, that was a finalist for both the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize. And one of my favorite, all-time favorite Civil War books was The Valley of the Shadow, Two Communities in the American Civil War, which also has a great online presence, uh, presence for people who like to do more research into the books that they read. It's also important to note that the success of Richmond's Civil War 150th commemoration can be traced directly to Ed's foresight. Long before the first anniversary program was arranged, he brought together the many diverse historical organizations of the city through the Future of Richmond's Past Consortium. And he raised funds to pull off the programs, like burning uh, the city with artistic lighting in April of 2015, and many other great events that occurred through the four-year anniversary. Uh, in addition, Dr. Ayers serves as a chairman on the, of the board for the American Civil War Museum, our Tredegar partners. I also have to point out that Ed is one of the co-hosts of Backstory, a nationally syndicated radio show that ties history to the All present right. day. So thanks again to all of you for being with us this evening. And with my work done, I will turn the program over to Paul. Thank you, Dave. That's a very nice introduction, especially for Ed. <laughs> but, uh, and so it begins. All right, all right. So um, I'm just here to you know, burnish his halo a little bit more. Um, so it occurs to me, Ed, that you know, everybody comes into this room thinking that they know something about Reconstruction, and maybe it came out of a high school textbook that from you know some time long in their past. But everybody thinks they know something about Reconstruction. What do you think everyone in this room thinks they know about Reconstruction? And this will be on the test, so take out your blue books and find <laughs> out if you do. Well, I think a lot of people had Dave's experience. I I'm uncomfortable until the people sitting in the back would like oh, to come yes. up. There's a few seats up front, and I'm sure your friends here wouldn't mind. So if you feel like coming on up, it won't disturb me while I rattle on. So feel free to, there's a few seats scattered around. Yeah, there I are, see there absolutely are some nobody here. moving, so, but I made the offer. Stoics. Yeah, the Stoics right. in the back of the room. So many people know that uh, American history breaks in 1865, and often that's when people go off for the winter break in school, and they do come back and mysteriously something called Reconstruction has happened. So the people who teach the first half don't really want to talk about it. And the people who teach the second half, it's a little bit hard to pick up, pick up the middle of the story. But I think people know that Reconstruction supposedly lasted 12 years, from 1865 to 1877. I think that people know that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated and that Andrew Johnson took over and that Lincoln would have been awesome, and Johnson was terrible, is what people <laughs> think they know. And Ed's uh, a Tennessean, so saying that about Andrew, Johnson I went is... to Andrew Johnson Elementary School, so... 
It hurts let, a little. Let, it hurts let, a little Let's bit. just get it out there right off the bat. Um, there's only two in the country for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why that is. I can't figure out why the other people have one. You know, we, we were nearby. Uh, I think that people know that there were some, that at some point the offer of 40 acres and a mule was kind of offered and then rescinded. I think people know that there were black codes that uh, Southern legislator, legislatures uh, created laws that were as close to slavery as they can make it. I think that people know that at some point black men became delegates to conventions Somewhere, I think that people know that Tommy Lee Jones had a really bad wig, uh, uh, that, that Thaddeus Stevens was a, a radical, and that we used to not like radicals, and that a lot of white people were taught that the idea that black men were in a convention was somehow ridiculous, and now we think it was a, a foreshadowing of the civil rights movement. So the thing is that none of those things actually line up into a story. Nothing actually fits together in sequence, because the other fact that's going to make it hard to explain Reconstruction is that every state followed a different path through mm -hmm. Reconstruction. So, but that's what I think that people know, but we're going to clarify all of that in the, next, in the next four hours that we have today. So do you think people think Reconstruction was a failure, a success? Well, you know, for the great majority of American history, people were taught that it wasn't merely a failure, but it was a tragedy and a farce. I mean, some of the best-selling books of the 1920s and 30s, the tragic era, Claude Bowers, the whole point was, can you believe that we allowed American democracy to be betrayed in this way by having uneducated former slaves making government? Well, not surprisingly, since the 1960s, that just seems racist. <laughs> uh, and why couldn't people govern themselves? And, there, and, and they did. And look at the things they did. I mean, here in Virginia, the outlandish thing that they did of creating a public school system, <laughs> you know, uh, is, is some of the things that Reconstruction is doing. So from the 1960s on, scholars have been pointing out the remarkable things that Reconstruction accomplished and, and, and saying that the people who came before really missed everything. Now I think people are trying to put together uh, an understanding, well, but Reconstruction somehow didn't fix America. You know, somehow we still had racism and somehow we still had injustice and somehow it was followed by segregation and disfranchisement. So, you know, our most famous book about the subject uh, Eric Foner's book, uh, Reconstruction, the subtitle is America's Unfinished Revolution. And I think that everybody thinks that Reconstruction failed in some way mm -hmm. because America still has injustice. So we're still wrestling through all this. You're trying to, to put it in focus and weigh it. But I think that what most people realize now, it was at least important, uh, which is something that I'm not sure that everybody through a lot of American history thought. Okay, well, this is always dangerous as a historian, but what if, what if the war had ended differently? If it had ended, say, earlier, or it had ended, um, you know, with a different set of circumstances, do you think the course of Reconstruction would have been much different? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it barely followed the course that it did. Um, I believe that Reconstruction begins in July of 1864. And I'm the only person who believes that. So let me tell you why I think that until, until they get a chance to read my book, and then, then they'll know. Uh, until July of 1864, it's not at all clear 
that Abraham Lincoln's going to win re-election. Right. And if Abraham Lincoln doesn't win re-election, who does? George McClellan. And what's the Democrats' platform? Let's negotiate an end to the war. And how do we negotiate an end to the war? Let's negotiate on slavery. Mm -hmm. And so Lincoln had already declared the Emancipation Proclamation in January 1863. And it was clear that if the Union overran the South, that slavery would be destroyed. But the Democrats say, how many of your sons and brothers and fathers are you going to give? That's enough. Let's negotiate an end. So as late as August 24th, 1864, Abraham Lincoln does not think he's going to win. Mm -hmm. Now think about that. Again, in the frame of our own experience right now, here we are in June. But what if in the how end many, of... How many superdelegates did he have? Yeah, that's a... <laughs> You're talking about controversial subjects? I'm not going there about all that. Back in the past, Paul, all the delegates were super in America. Oh, yeah. Um, but so why does Lincoln win? And uh, he actually has his cabinet sign without reading a document that pledges them to help the next president of the United States because that next president is going to need all the help that he can get because he has run on a platform that put, has put him in an impossible position. So the, the, the Democrats meet in a convention in Chicago, uh, and they nominate McClellan, and they've waited as long as possible to have their convention, to let the war, and I hate to say it, go as badly as possible. Mm -hmm. Because right here in Richmond, right outside of Richmond, Grant seems immobilized. You've got the largest army of the United States unable to defend, unable to destroy the most powerful Confederate army under Robert E. Lee. And people are saying, you've had four years, what's it going to take to take Richmond? Uh, and then William Sherman's uh, army seems to be immobilized outside of Atlanta. And so with those two things, and people are saying, we've put millions of men in uniform, we've made so many sacrifices, we're spending millions of dollars every day, and you can't bring, bring this war to a close. Maybe it's not winnable. Maybe we should negotiate. So Sherman, even as the Democrats are getting back home after this convention, takes Atlanta in the very beginning of September. And that seems a turning point. But I think another turning point happens even closer to here. The Shenandoah Valley, people know about Jackson's campaign in 1862, but all of 1864, it's under assault by guerrillas. So that Sheridan comes down, they're trying, they have three different generals trying to take the Shenandoah Valley, which points right at, you know, I-81, right, right to Washington, right? And 60, hang on, right on 66, mm -hmm. you're there. Um, and in, in July, they are threatening Washington, D.C. So when Sheridan, who actually begins the burning of the valley, and they drive the Confederates out, in September and October, right on the eve of the election. People remember Reagan winning after the helicopters get bogged down in the sand in the Middle East and credited with his victory. In many ways, Sheridan winning the Valley plays a critical role. So Lincoln does win. That is the turning point in the Civil War. Everybody has known that election's coming. In many ways, the invasion of Gettysburg, which was not the turning point of the Civil War. Everybody knows it was the seven days. Um, <laughs> except for what I'm saying, which is it's the election of 1864. Uh, he does that, he tells his wife, to show the northern voters that Lincoln cannot protect them. But once Lincoln has won the presidency, then something like Reconstruction can come. Now, mm -hmm. if I can just go ahead and 
don't know if it's a question, but here's the important thing to understand while we're talking about this. Lincoln does not say what Reconstruction is supposed to look like, anything like what happens. Lincoln's plan is, let's try to put the United States back together as quickly as possible. And so as soon as 10% of the voters in any state will pledge their allegiance to the United States and create a, a legislature and create a constitution declaring the end of secession and the illegality of slavery, you can come back in the United States. That's Lincoln's plan. And he has never said anything. The very last speech he gives on April 11th, which is after Appomattox and very close to his assassination, is about Reconstruction. And all he says is, please give this 10% plan a chance. And the last conversation he ever has is with Andrew Johnson. We don't know what they said. But that ends up being Andrew Johnson's plan as well, which people see as a horrible disaster, even though all that we know is that that's what Lincoln had in mind. So the war could have ended differently. And of course, after that, Appomattox and and Petersburg and the things that happened here. Uh, But the other thing that happens is the 13th Amendment is passed in January of 1865 before Richmond Falls. And if you've seen the Lincoln movie, you know it must have seemed to many people, as it did to me, a strange thing. you got all of Abraham Lincoln's life, and you're going to focus on that period. And that's because he knows if the war ends before they have a 13th Amendment, all the Emancipation Acts have been his. There's never been a referendum. There's never been a legislative act. It's all been uh, um, his actions as commander-in-chief. So Lincoln is in a race to get the 13th Amendment passed before the war ends. And of course, then the Democrats say, you're just prolonging the war down there in Richmond in order to get this passed. Mm -hmm. So the question is, this could have all turned out so differently than it did. Sure. So you mentioned Johnson again. I mean, from my understanding, Johnson saw himself as following through with the, the few details that Lincoln had revealed about Reconstruction and his plans. I mean, is that, you think that's a fair assessment? And how, what is, how does Johnson's role in, in all this affect the course of events? Because it's pretty significant. Yeah, well, you know, the strange thing is that Democrats and Republicans are each other's throats the whole war. And that Lincoln uh, does, basically persuades no Democrat to join him in 1864. There's only a 4% change and people who'd voted for the Democrats in 1860 who vote for John Lincoln in 1864. Again, if you despair about the state of politics today, think about that, that you won't vote for Abraham Lincoln in the middle of the Civil War. And so nearly half of white northern men won't vote for Abraham Lincoln. But when Johnson becomes president, the Democrats like Johnson because he used to be a Democrat, and the Republicans like him because they just nominated him six months earlier to be vice president of the United States. And there's a sense, it's a tragedy that President Lincoln has died, but nobody could be better than Andrew Johnson. And a Southerner. But more than a Southerner, he was the only U.S. Senator who did not resign his commission in the United or his position in the United States Senate. He is the only Southerner who's loyal to the United States. Then he goes back to Tennessee and leads something much like the Reconstruction effort uh, and risks his life. So if you want to see who actually has the credentials to deserve to be president of the United States at this point, Andrew Johnson is right there. And you're right, Paul. Johnson believes that he is performing what Abraham Lincoln would have done, Mm -hmm. which is what's the goal? 
to put the United States back together without slavery. That has been the purpose throughout the entire war, is to reconstitute the United States without slavery. We all know slavery had been built into the Constitution. There had never been a moment where the United States had been free from slavery. Now you get rid of slavery, you put the country back together, and you create a new national party. This is what Johnson thought he was going to do. And he thought Lincoln wanted to as well. The great glory days of American politics have been when there were two national parties in which the Whigs are in Massachusetts and in Mississippi. And having them in the same party helps hold the country together. What broke the country apart is when you have a purely regional party, the Republicans, mm -hmm. only representing a regional interest. So Johnson says, we need a new party that pulls together the best men of the South and the best men of the North. That means white men. And that means that chances are they would have played some role in the Confederacy. If they will take an oath that they will no longer adhere to that belief and that they will accept the 13th Amendment, let's put it back together. And the White South says, okay, we'll do that. That's what we think Appomattox has determined, that we lost, we lost slavery, let's put it back together. But the Republicans say, we have lost 350,000 men, and you're just going to give it all right back, and it's going to be even worse because under the three-fifths clause, enslaved people just counted as three-fifths of a person. But now, after slavery's gone, the South is going to have greater representation in Congress than it had before. And so we're going to have bled for four years and won, and then the South's going to be stronger than it was before. We cannot have that. These white men who led the Confederacy or who aided the Confederacy must be disfranchised. And that becomes the crucial issue in all this. And, you know, frankly, a lot of people patronize Andrew Johnson for being a hillbilly, you know, for, and, and I'm, you know, he was a self-taught tailor. His wife taught him how to read. Um, and that people think, well, he was just kind of a redneck in disguise. But he was actually had a plan, which was to, okay, we won what we needed to win. Slavery is gone. Let's move on. The Republicans said this is no foundation for a truly just country if the, if the South is going to be dominating the country again. Right. And, of course, Johnson is the first president to be impeached. Yeah. I mean, there's, if, you, if you go back and read the – I mean, this drags on for years. I mean, I think that's something that we missed, you know, when you were on – on holiday break there, Dave, uh, what happened is, is that we, we did go directly from Johnson showing up, White South kind of acting up, and Republicans impeaching him. But it, it's years. Yep. And he, he vetoes one thing after another. He vetoes the Freedmen's Bureau Act. Then he vetoes uh, the, the Civil Rights, Civil Rights Act. Act. Yeah. And then he's, you know, so he's, every single thing the Republicans want to do, Johnson vetoes. And so, you know, it's long-growing um, animosity. Now, I should say one thing. You know, Dave mentioned the sesquicentennial. Right now, we're at the sesquicentennial of two big events that actually helped cause the Reconstruction we know. We're halfway between a riot in Memphis and a riot in New Orleans in 1866. And so this, in many ways, is what discredits Johnson. Mm -hmm. Johnson says, I'm putting the pieces back together as quickly and peaceably as I can. And what do white Southerners do? They go on riots where they kill innocent black people in the streets of two major cities. 
and the people, and they also enact the black codes that people know about uh, that constitutes as much slavery as possible in the new era. And even moderate Republicans saying, this is a travesty. I did not give two of my sons so that the white South can come back and kill black people wantonly in the streets and reconstitute slavery under a different name. And so Johnson, who had looked moderate when he begun, begins in 65, by now he's just sort of been stranded on the beach mm -hmm. by events that make him look traitorous, mm -hmm. uh, an ally to the bad white South. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, violence is one of the things that I, I also think people come to this knowing about Reconstruction, um, that somehow there was just this, this incredible um, spasm of violence across, across the South. You know, I think a lot of people know that the Ku Klux Klan and groups like that rise during Reconstruction. What, what are the role of, of sort of white, extra-legal, vigilante and, and sort of violent-oriented groups in, in Reconstruction's course? Yeah. So the Ku Klux, we're also on the anniversary of the Ku Klux Klan. It's 1866, uh, and you sometimes will read about the controversies about statues to Nathan Bedford Forrest. Other cities have controversies about statues and things. That's hard to imagine, but, 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 but that's what that is. And, and, and he's so controversial, partly because of Fort Pillow, but also because of he's one of the founders of the Ku Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's fair to say that white Southerners turn to violence in every form. When you go back and you read the very first contracts that former masters are making with the former slaves, uh, and basically they're threats. You know, they're, they're, they're saying, you know, if you don't do what I say, we'll drive you off our land. Right. And so the whole record is just saturated. Now, what's the white Southern response, including the Ku Klux Klan? There is no actual civil government. Okay? There's nobody in charge. And if anybody's going to punish adulterers or, and thieves so forth, it's going to have to be the Ku Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. And then they say, and now everybody knows that it is just wrong for black men to have political power. Therefore, we are not wrong to resist it. And so people have seen Birth of a Nation, perhaps, 1915, uh, in which the heroes are the Ku Klux Klan. And the nation celebrates this movie. You know, it's shown in the White House with the Ku Klux Klan seen as kind of the restorers of justice at a time when there's a vacuum of power. Mm -hmm. All the way till the very end of Reconstruction. So there's a Ku Klux Klan investigation, 1870, 71, 72 in South Carolina. The Republicans point to continued violence as a reason to continue Reconstruction. So I think that of the things that People used to think there was violence and it was justified. Now people know there's violence and think it's not. It was horrifying. <coughs> and I mean, the, the, the violence perpetrated by the Klan and other organizations has a real effect on depressing black voter yeah, turnout. We're, 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 we don't have black people voting yet. Mm -hmm. We've got to tell that story. Sure, 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 okay? sure. So here's the story. You have the riots. You have the black codes. You have this violence. You have the Ku Klux Klan. And... Republicans in the North, who might have been willing to go along with a different kind of peace, say, just ending slavery is not going to be enough. And now that Johnson's vetoed the Civil Rights Act, we're going to have to amend the Constitution of the United States with a 14th Amendment. And that amendment's going to say, if you're born in this country, you have the rights of an American citizen. So in many ways, this is the most vital 
uh, of the amendments today, and you'll be hearing basically a lot of debate. Who is an American? Well, after Reconstruction, during Reconstruction, and they start in 1866, in order for the formerly enslaved people to be citizens, it says if you were born here, you are a citizen. The other thing it says is for a southern state to be readmitted into the Union, you must have a convention to write a new constitution that accepts the 13th and 14th Amendment. Black men must be able to vote for that convention, and black men must be able to hold positions in that convention. So every southern state has then to register uh, black men. Now, that act is passed in March of 1867. So think, two years now have passed since Andrew Johnson takes office and what we think of as radical reconstruction. I think that's some, something else that people don't know. People, having seen Gone with the Wind, know that those Yankee soldiers are right there and just behaving just awfully <laughs> while they're there. And that's, that's reconstruction. But they go away. And then they come back. And because the white South, from the re Republican point of view, has reneged on the basic agreements that you lost, you will now reconstitute the government in a fair way. So black voting comes as a reaction to a reaction mm -hmm. uh, of the end of the war. So when those men are allowed to vote and people do the calculations. Now, Virginia is interesting because there is a white majority uh, in Virginia. But they also know that virtually all black men are going to register and vote. So if you're a white southerner and you're used to 200 years of dominion over African-Americans, and this comes down from Washington, what do you do? Well, some people say, I'm not going to dirty my hands with participation in this. It's a, the outcome is foreordained. For I'm not going to do it. And so they don't vote, and so they lose, right? And so there is, and you'll have 85, 90% voter turnout among African-American men two years after slavery is over. And so one of the stories that white Southerners had told themselves is that, A, black people couldn't understand politics. B, they didn't want to be participating in it. C, they would trust their former masters who were their best friends, uh, who would fire them if they did vote. Um, and the people would be killed. If you, if you were seen as an, a, an organizer of the black vote in the Republican Party in 1867, uh, you're putting, putting your life at risk. Mm -hmm. So... It's partly because, and in between, everything just seems to be drifting, right? And so now you have Reconstruction beginning after that, and they do elect delegates, and they do have a convention. And right here in Richmond, uh, Virginia's convention is held. I think there are 24 African-American men among the 150 or so delegates, uh, and then there are other white Republicans uh, and there's some men who are called conservatives then, um, former Democrats and future Democrats, uh, but it's dominated by Republicans with African-American Virginians who often had been free before the war, who were more often than not uh, mulatto with some white ancestry, more often than not literate, uh, belying all the stereotypes that people had already written before the events happened. Sure. And it turned out that even people had to admit after the end of this constitutional convention that the constitution they came up with was fine. Called the Underwood Constitution. The Underwood, Underwood Convention because of the guy who oversaw it. There was only, they, you know, creating public schools seems to be a good idea. 
The thing that was the sticking point that made Reconstruction harder in Virginia in some ways than elsewhere is that the convention said there will be an ironclad oath for anybody who is going to vote or hold office. The ironclad oath, which sounds like something off Game of Thrones, doesn't it? But <laughs> says this, I have never given support to the Confederate States of America, or what the Republicans call the so-called Confederate States of America. Lincoln and Johnson don't acknowledge that a state could actually leave the United States, and so the Confederacy was so-called. Ironically, the radical Republicans said, yes, they could, and now they're a conquered territory. And so, ironically, so, so, con us, so right. Confederates and radicals agreed that, yes, we left. The moderates are trying to hold together and say, no, you never left. <laughs> you know, let's put it back together. So, but they said, unless you can pass this ironclad oath, you are disfranchised. Mm -hmm. And so people look at this and they say, that's either just, because if you did support the Confederacy, you do not deserve a place of power in a newly constituted United States, or they could say that it's unjust and you're never going to be able to put the country back together as long as you don't have any qualified white men to be able to vote. And they would say, Republicans, this is just a ruse on your part to dominate everything. So in Virginia, the big issue comes, how can they get rid of this provision? Can I tell you? I think we're all waiting for that. Okay. <laughs> Virginia follows a very unusual, but I think very Virginian way out of all of this. Over in Stanton, as you're getting ready to have your trip, Alexander H.H. H. Stewart, John Brown Baldwin, who were two former Whigs who actually voted vehemently against secession, but who had then supported the Confederacy, look at this and they say, this convention, if this constitution passes, it's a disaster. So they constitute themselves a committee of nine. They come here to Richmond. They lobby everybody, uh, the governor and the uh, senators, and then they go to Washington with no authority really at all and meet with a bunch of senators and meet with President-elect Grant, and they're saying, here's a deal, tell you what, if you can not have that clause in there, if you can have what they call universal amnesty, we will support universal suffrage. We will say it's okay for black men to vote, and we will support the Constitution if we can vote on the different clauses separately. So you don't just have to say, yes, I'm in favor of the Constitution or against it. So, they do dismantle that. People vote against uh, disfranchising former Confederates. They vote for enfranchising black men. So that's in 1868 and 9. But then the deal is the one branch of the Republicans and these conservatives get together and they come up with a Republican candidate who agrees it would be good if we just got through this Reconstruction thing as quickly as possible. And so Virginia actually never really has Reconstruction in terms of being governed by a, uh, a radical legislature. They had this convention. They write the Constitution. It's approved. But then the conservatives and Republicans kind of strike a deal, and Virginia's Reconstruction is over by 1870. So when you're going from Reconstruction lasts from 1865 to 1877, I've just told you, no, it lasts from 1864 to 1870. So it starts earlier than we think. It ends earlier than we think. And the other thing that happens in 1870 is the 15th Amendment is passed. 
okay, that says that you may not prohibit voting on the condition of race. And so that by 1870, all the pieces of what we think of as Reconstruction are in place. Mm -hmm. And in Virginia, they begin putting, putting together a new coalition. Other states, as people know, 1877 is a real date when the, the troops are removed from the last two southern states where they are still occupied. And during that time, it, there are these Republican legislatures who are running things. So you can see why it's complicated, but I, I don't think people know Virginia's story because it does, it's not a very good story. They had a compromise, worked it out, and it ended. But, but, but that's why it happened. It's like a gentleman's agreement. Well, I think we could just meet and, you know what I mean? We just work this out. And they do, and that's how Reconstruction ends in Virginia. But in the popular imagination, uh, somehow this, you know, the, the military boot, boot was on the neck of Virginians for years and years, right? I know. We were military district number one. Uh, right. But the thing is, there's a, a general who's 36 years old at the time, and he thinks, you know, I don't agree with the disfranchisement provision for white men either. And he talks to Grant and says, you know, I think it'd be a good idea if you went along with this. And so, talk about presidents, it's not Johnson who gets Virginia out of Reconstruction so easily, it's Grant. And his election campaign slogan was, let us have peace. Now think about this. So it's 1868, the war's been over for three years, and he's still saying, let us have peace. And so Grant, in some ways, still has Lincoln's vision mm -hmm. and Johnson's vision. The point is to put the country back together. Black men have the vote. Black men have freedom. Black men are actually able to marry legally. That's a lot to have accomplished. Now let's see what happens. And of course, what happens is this violence we talked about before. Right. Um, it comes sweeping back over uh, black Virginians. Now, but here's the thing. Black Virginians don't give up in the face of that violence. There are black office holders, including in Washington from Virginia, all the way the rest of the 19th century especially in heavily black districts. You know, if this were my oral exam and you would say, so Ed, if you had to say when Reconstruction really ends, when would you say? And I would say in Virginia, the answer is 1901. That's when you have the new constitutional convention that's basically called to get rid of the things that were created in the Underwood Constitution of 1868. Now, they say because of the 15th Amendment that you cannot prohibit a black man from voting because of the color of his skin, but maybe there's ways we can get around that. Maybe you have to pay poll taxes. Maybe you have to demonstrate to the registrar that you can understand the, uh, part of the Constitution. As a result, by the 1920s, the percentage of eligible Virginia voters who vote is in the 20 percent. Virginia politics is just smothered by this convention of 1901. Things that we might not think of as being bad, like the secret ballot, right? Mm -hmm. And in which case that, you know, before a party would come and they would give you a ballot and it would have a color and you would know this, I'm voting the whole party. Mm -hmm. But now you have to go into a voting booth by yourself and mark these things. All these things, and not just in Virginia, but across the entire South, every Southern state does this at around the same time between 1890 and 1908. They explicitly work around the 15th Amendment. And that's why the Civil Rights Movement's necessary. For the 20th century, Reconstruction might as well not have happened in terms of African-American voting and office holding. But it took 
30 years of the most determined effort by Southern whites to smother this because once black people, men and women working together in their churches and their professional organizations and things like the, the, uh, the reformers and you know, with Maggie Walker, all of that, there's this great effort to make sure that in every way that we can, the Richmond Planet here in Richmond, we've got, even if it is a threat, even if we can't win, it's important that we keep voting. And they do until they are prevented by the Constitutional Convention. So this, the narrative arc of Reconstruction is really 50 years almost. Mm -hmm. What some folks call the long Reconstruction. Yeah. And then when the Civil Rights Movement comes, it's called then at the time the Second Reconstruction. Because now if you want to be optimistic, look, look at it this way. What's the foundation of the Second Reconstruction? The 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment. The mm -hmm. Voting Rights Act. Civil Rights Act are building upon the direct legal legacy of Reconstruction. Right. And those would not have been in place, ironically, had the white South not fought back so much that they forced or allowed the radical Republicans to create these new constitutional mm -hmm. amendments. And so today, as people are wrestling with the meaning of immigration and so forth, these are still the issues, and they are a direct legacy of Reconstruction. So you could argue that Reconstruction hasn't ended yet, and that it's still kind of like a, a slow-dissolved tablet that's playing out throughout American history. And so even during its own time, there's, there's not a straight line. Nobody says, this is what we want. We're going to go there. Everybody's reacting to everybody else. And, and in some ways, if the White South had just accepted what was offered in 1865-66, and even, frankly, if Abraham Lincoln had lived, we might not have had the 14th and 15th Amendments. So we look back on it and say, wouldn't it have been great if they just worked things out? But the answer might have been no, right, if you didn't build these, these potential for future change in it. Mm -hmm. Well, let's rewind just a second. Okay. Uh, one of the interesting episodes, I think, of Reconstruction is where we have dated its end with 1877, right? why there? And, and, and could you talk a little bit about the circumstances that lead to that being the line in the sand that we've used for so many years? Yeah, I mean, it's the very, very end of the last troops being withdrawn because, and here's the thing to remember, you would think that the Republicans win the Civil War under Abraham Lincoln, they pass these great amendments, they conduct Reconstruction, you might think that the Democrats would shrivel up, but instead the Democrats remain as strong as they'd ever been. For the next 30 years, you have the closest elections in American history. There's, they have, each, each side has like 49.8%. I mean, they are, and so the election of 1876, the uh, popular vote looks like it goes to the Democrats, the electoral vote looks like it goes to Republicans. They have another bargain, kind of like they did the end reconstruction in Virginia. They talk it over and the deal becomes the Republicans will win, but the Republicans will remove the last troops from reconstruction and reconstruction will be over. Mm -hmm. By this time, of course, reconstruction has been over for seven years in Virginia and many other southern states as well. So the trick is, as you try to talk about reconstruction, everybody kind of has to know their own state history. Right. But then the big picture is, is that, but in some ways it's misleading. It suggests that sure. Reconstruction lasted longer than it did. When people then argue about how much of a military presence was there, well, we've seen in our own time how hard it is to occupy an enemy territory if you have drones. 
Imagine if you don't even have a telephone, right? Now, and, and I'm not kidding. Think about this. They are trying to occupy an area the size of continental Europe, the former Confederacy. That's how big the Confederacy is. And your entire military uh, intelligence is a telegraph, which then unleashes a horse, right? <laughs> and so, and I, 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 I don't mean to be funny. I, I mean... But the point being is that if you are a vulnerable person somewhere in rural Virginia, the chances of the military being of any immediate help to you are very slim. Mm -hmm. So this idea that we have is under the jackbooted thugs of the federal government or whatever, it couldn't be. They're spread know? pretty thin. They're spread. So if you were, in, which is one reason so many African American people moved to cities during this time mm -hmm. and towns, is for safety, because. This, the town, life in Richmond may be hard, but the black population surges during the war and afterwards because there are troops here and you have some safety. But if you're out in rural Virginia and some white person wants to do anything he wants to, the best you can hope for is justice after the fact. But very quickly, the courts are becoming run by all other white Southerners. Sure. And so there, there, there's really despairing of any justice that, that can come. And that becomes one of the great, that's another direct source for some of the things we struggle with today mm -hmm. uh, as a direct result of how could justice have been administered? Is there something that could have been done that right. would have given a black person anything like a fair shake in a trial? Right. Well, you know, the, uh, you mentioned birth of a nation and gone with the wind. And I think popular... And let me just interrupt. The two most popular movies per capita in American history. Okay? Gone with the Wind is still the most popular movie in American history based on the percentage of the population. Okay? And they're both about Reconstruction. So I just wanted to, they, to interrupt you. But it, apparently I did an effective job of that. Wait, no. I, interrupting me, absolutely not a problem. Um, Good, I'll do it again. Yeah, I, I, I imagine so. Uh, but, you know, I think it's, it, it, it shows the power that popular culture has in shaping our impressions of events more powerful than a textbook that maybe you didn't quite get to or um, something that, you know, a scholar puts out. You know, what do you think about that, that power and, and how lasting that has been. I mean, it, it strikes me that, that a lot of what people come to know about Reconstruction may be based on a, well, of course it is. On a film like that. Yeah. Uh, well, here's the thing. What could be a better story than people becoming free with nothing but their shirts on their backs and making new lives for themselves out of nothing? And all you have to do is look at Richmond. Look at Jackson Ward. Look at the, the churches and the schools and the businesses and the families that people created. Isn't that a better story than making a dress out of curtains? <laughs> you know, that's so bad. You know? So I always I always preferred Carol Burnett's version with the, the curtain right. rod still in. Yeah, the shoulder that would be good. But it, it, I'm sorry, that it does say something that our sympathies have been with a privileged Southern white woman and her sufferings rather than the sufferings of people for 200 years of bondage coming out of slavery. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a new movie coming out this week, The Free State of Jones with Matthew McConaughey about all this, and we haven't seen it. It'll be interesting to see. This will be uh, the first movie about Reconstruction. And there was also one that was... Um, 
Matt Gibson, uh, Mel Gibson, I think. Uh, You don't need to look for it. Uh, (laughs) But it's a failure of imagination of of the American filmmakers and novelists. I mean, where's the great story that we could read about it? So I think that with all the movies we've had recently about slavery, uh, somebody's going to figure out how to tell the great story of people making themselves free in Reconstruction, which is, you know, why don't people want to talk about Reconstruction is it's depressing, no matter who you are, right? You know, no matter whom you identify with, you feel like, well, that's not really what I want to hear about. If you're a white Southerner, you're the, you're the bad people. Right. If you're a white Northerner, it's like, well, why'd you quit? You know? Or if you're a white Democrat, there you were. You could have enabled this, and you voted against it right. every step. And if you're a black American, it's like, we worked and helped build this nation, and at the moment of freedom, people turned their backs on us. And, but here's the way that I see it. This struggle between white Americans created a space, a small space, that black Americans used to create the justice that they got. If you think about, and we were chatting before, about the historically black colleges and universities of Virginia and of the country, including of our own uh, Virginia Union, created at Lumpkin's Jail, in that moment where there was enough space between white Northerners and Southerners for black Southerners to make freedom for themselves and to make the churches, and this is one of the ironies that I love, white Southerners were willing for black Southerners to have their own churches and their own fraternal and, and, and uh, community organizations and to have their own schools. And where does the civil rights movement come from? Right? It comes from that space that black people created for themselves that were, that were permitted by whites, because, even encouraged, mm-hmm. because, yes, we've been sharing a pulpit, been sharing a pew and listening about the message of Christianity, and I'm not sure that the golden rule describes slavery very well. So go have your own, your own denominations, your own congregations. We'll actually even help pay for it. Mm-hmm. And it's those places, those churches, and you think about the images we all have of Martin Luther King traveling across the South from one pulpit to another saying, now let's fulfill the vision of justice that was held out but not delivered back in the 1860s. So I think that if we pull the camera back a little bit farther than 1877 when it just looked like failure, or even 1901, and instead to think about how black Americans never gave up, never let up, never relented, but pushed every day, even during the hardest times of Jim Crow, for decades after decades, so that somehow... In the 1950s and 1960s, there was this reservoir of political skill, of political will, of solidarity, that frankly white Americans had done everything they could to either smother or had neglected. So Reconstruction should be valued not only by what it intended to do, but by what black Americans made it do. I don't think we can say much more than that. Thanks. So 
So we, we have uh, one or two microphones circulating. Two. So if you've got a question, please put your hand up in the air and wait for a microphone to get to you. We'll start right here on the aisle. I see someone. Why has the story of the free state of Jones become so popular? As you said, the movie starts Friday, book has just come out, and I would dare say 90% of the people in this room had never heard of Jones, Mississippi. It's a, I don't want to be cynical before I see it. Uh, I'll be cynical after I see it. No. Uh, I think that it is, People like the idea of not everybody going along with the Confederacy, like the idea of some white Southerners resisting it, and that it, that it might as well be Matthew McConaughey <laughs> if, it, if it's going to be anybody, right? So I think that it is, it's a story kind of like 12 Years a Slave of people resisting injustice, and people like that. And, so, and it's going to have lots of opportunities for violence, and it's going to be uh, and beards and beers, right? With somebody beards. that you can cheer for. So that's where it came from. So Free State of Jones is just a small part of a deep south state that declared that it was seceding from the seceded states, um, and that that was the basis of its. So that's that's where it comes from. It's a stirring story. That's a way of dealing with all this. That in some ways sidesteps a lot of the political challenges of it. So we'll see. Maybe it'll be great. They had some of the best historians in the country as consultants, and maybe they were able to steer it in a productive way. But, but remember, Hollywood did bring you Mel Gibson during the Revolutionary War with a sort of agriculture, <laughs> agricultural cooperative he worked on with African Americans. Yeah. Yeah, so you have reason to be cynical in advance. Uh, I guess what I'd say is go to the matinee. That's right. <laughs> right here on the aisle. It may have been a... Um, I'm sorry, where are you? Right up there. Up there. Yeah. Oh, yes, sorry. It may have been a, a result or an aftermath of the uh, Underwood Commission, which the Constitution in Virginia is back in the Union, but there was a period in Virginia called the Redemption. Could you tell us a little bit about that and the Redeemers? I can, and I'll throw in the readjusters. Uh, <laughs> because this is Virginia's, in many ways, Virginia's... Reconstruction. Uh, so the redeemers are the people who end Reconstruction. Uh, they're redeeming the South from the sin of Reconstruction. That's, that's how they refer to themselves, we're the redeemers. Well, in Virginia, part of this deal that I talked about uh, of uh, conservative whites and Republic, uh, conservative Democrats and Republicans joining together, there's a guy named uh, William Mahone. Uh, in there, who's a former Confederate general, but who's also a big, uh, wants to be a big railroad uh, tycoon. And he puts together, because the big debate back at this time is, does Virginia owe all of the money that it had incurred as a debt before the Civil War? And does it incur the debt of what's now West Virginia? And the people who own the bonds of that debt said, Heck yeah. <laughs> and the people who wish that Virginia had money to put toward schools say, look, that was antebellum. This is a new order. Let's readjust the debt, bring it down to a reasonable level so that the state is not bankrupting itself just to pay off these bondholders. And uh, so the readjusters are an alliance 
led by Mahone, strangely enough, of a Confederate general, of black voters and working class whites, and also from Southwest Virginia, who want to readjust the debt. And this is the big fight in the early 1880s. And Paul asked before about uh, violence. Virginia has a huge riot in Danville in 1883 that's triggered by this debate. And after that, Danville, which is a heavily African-American county, had had a lot of black political leadership and representation. After that, it no longer does. And people look at this. So Virginia likes to think of itself as a more peaceful state than the, the real South, since we're now part of the mid-Atlantic. And, uh, <laughs> but we had every element of it. It was just kind of delayed by the, kind of the premature deal that brought Reconstruction in. So readjusterism fails, even though Mahone goes to the United States Senate. Uh, and then the conservatives take over. When the conservatives take over again, that's one reason they say, never again. Let's put a new constitution out that makes sure that you don't have the possibility of this alliance of black and white again. So let's basically suppress democracy so that the good people can run Virginia. And that's what happens. Okay. So that's the redeemers and the readjusters. Next question right here on the Yes. Of the states that succeeded, certainly all of them came under construction, but Reconstruction, but what about the states like Maryland, okay, which were kind of halfway but That's never right. really got a chance, or Kentucky? Yeah. No, they don't undergo Reconstruction, and neither does Tennessee, partly because Tennessee does the things that were required of them early on, pass the 13th Amendment, take these oaths, and so forth. Um, but all the other states, but yeah, the, uh, those other states, the border states, don't undergo Reconstruction. The other part of the question is, I know that there were many churches who owned slaves that had been given to them. Was there any type of reconstruction against them? I'd say if you go back and look at the church records, uh, people were generally, well, first of all, they had no legal standing, right? Um, their slaves were gone too. Uh, the churches make a point of behaving in what they see as Christian ways and of welcoming their brothers and sisters of color, as they would call them. It always says colored after the names. Uh, they're not driven out of the congregations, but if they want to create their own with their own pastors, then often the whites will help them. Now, you have big fights over who owns the building sometimes, right? And so you have issues such as that. So it's not an easy process, but... Uh, and before the war, you know, you had one of the largest churches in America, African-American churches, uh, First African Baptist, which had to have a white pastor. One of my predecessors at the president of the University of Richmond, Robert Ryland, after the war, black people say, we never needed that, and we certainly don't need it now. So thanks a lot. We're going to go off. We'll find our own place. So I think that the church, the break in the churches is the first thing to break. It breaks as soon as black people have a chance at all. But white people often don't only often not only don't resist it; they often enable it for reasons that are positive and negative. And I think we got time for one final question. Well, I hope it's a good one. Uh, you blame popular culture in a way for championing a white woman over the rise of the stories of the blacks who overcame that. I wonder, though, isn't it more the fault—and forgive me—of the historians? 
isn't this the first war that was lost, but the losers got to write the history? I think that's more pertinent than just popular culture. That's a good question. Spunky. Scarlet would have liked that question, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you, I meant for you to. You know, it took a lot of people to get this story wrong. Here's the thing. Academic historians, the first thing we did when we became professional, the American Historical Association started getting PhDs based on the German model, we started writing histories of Reconstruction that reinforced the white Southern story. So when Margaret Mitchell is writing Gone with the Wind, there is nothing other, <coughs> there's, the, 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 you're exactly right. No historian tells a different story except W.B. Du Bois in the 1930s in which he says, this is fundamentally about labor and race, and it's a great injustice. But he is ignored, basically, by white historians until the 1960s, and then he's seen as the great hero. So I'd say this, I mean, I, I wouldn't say, well, Gone with the Wind is popular for a reason. First of all, it's a great movie, you know? And, I mean, you know, I mean, it's a powerful movie. It's a great spectacle. Um, it's, Funny, we, even then we had to get English people to play Americans. I don't know what the deal with that is. But, <laughs> but and Birth of a Nation for its own time technically was a remarkable film, right? And so the thing is that this is a great drama, um, and there, the intrinsic, I'd say now historians have outrun the popular imagination. If we are to blame, and I'm willing to accept this, why don't we do a better job of getting our story before people? Because not everybody has somebody as enlightened as the National Park Service in Richmond and the Virginia Historical Society and the people who give up a Wednesday afternoon to come to talk about something depressing like this. There's clearly a hunger for this. So in the same way that we use the sesquicentennial to really think about the role of slavery in the Civil War here in our city, I think that we can think about, we can use the sesquicentennial to think about Reconstruction. Because the point is really not to blame anybody. The point is, okay, they're dead. We're alive. We can think about this. We can think about what obligations we've inherited. We can think about what limitations we've inherited as a result of all of this. Even though I think about the past for a living, I do it really because I care about the future. And the fact that we can talk about this now in a way we've never been able to talk about it before, in which we've been able to imagine a movie that's not been made, right? We're better off than we have been. So it took a lot of people to get us to this place. It's going to take all of us to get us to a better place. So thanks very much. Great note.